stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Before we get into the episode tonight, we just wanted to take a moment to um, tell you again about our new uh, Patreon program and to thank the uh, people that have continued to support us on Patreon, but especially in the last month or so as we've ramped things up, we've really gotten a lot of new uh, contributors and we really appreciate your support. Again, it's allowed us to kind of, um, you know, recoup some costs from our event that we did in November and plan the rest of our year out. Um, you know, we do we do updates from time to time, letting you know how we're spending your money. Sometimes it's new audio equipment so that we can improve the quality of the shows. I mean, it always gets pumped back directly into the shows in one way or another. Um and um yeah so uh, as you guys probably know we started a new frame rate show uh recently and that's two dollars a month and you get uh two extra episodes a month where we talk about um some other films usually science fiction but we haven't um restrained it to that so um you know recently we did the lighthouse and the shining close encounters of the third kind um dr sleep the follow-up to the shining yeah so so if you want to join our new friends and you want to get on board this program a, thank you very much. And B, go to uh, bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support or go to Patreon and just search for Perfect Organism, which is our holding company for both shows. They share budgets, but uh, we do quite a lot with both of them and we make sure we take note of which show you're supporting when you join so we know exactly how to use your funds most effectively. Um, and as Dan said, we have a lot of great stuff coming up. We've redone some of our budgets already because of the increased support we've gotten. And if you want to see more things like Gethsemane, our audio project from last year, this is how those things are able to happen. So again, it's bladebarnerpodcast.com forward slash support, and thank you. Ridley was over here hunting around for people to work on this film that he'd agreed to do. I went over and had a meeting with Michael Dealey, Ridley Scott, I think Ivor Powell, and John Rogers, and got the script handed to me called Dangerous Days. Isn't it fortunate <laughs> it wasn't used? And uh, took it home and started to do sketches and started to submit work to Ridley, and then uh, Lawrence Paul was hired. I was the first hire on the, on the staff. A futurist. Sid Mead was one of the great um, illustrators of <clears throat> industrial objects, cars, electric lines, apartments, 
skyscrapers, cityscapes, urban development. And I looked at this, thought, looking at them as if they were fantasy. Now, Sid was actually a great preview on where we've gone now in Tokyo, in, I've just been to Shanghai, in Shanghai certainly, the way the urban development is going, Sid absolutely had it nailed. And um, I didn't know that at the time, I just felt he did. Welcome to Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by... Patrick. And Dan Ferlito. Welcome to 2020, everyone. This is our first episode of the new year, right? Right. And today, we are here to talk about Sid Mead. He passed away... Um, what day was that? Do you guys December remember? 30th. December yeah, 30th right, of right 2019. Another sort of poetic death Sid Mead as everyone knows Sid Mead is responsible for the the visuals of Blade Runner and some of Blade Runner 2049 we'll get into that in a little bit but really Sid Mead is a futurist unlike we've ever had before in terms of who he was as an artist his imprint on the world of art making and conceptual design and science and science fiction and movies and most notably Blade Runner I mean that's really the film that has Sid Mead all over it. And it was uh, definitely sad news to hear right before the end of the year. But he lived a very long life. He was 86 years old. Um, he has an incredible body of work. He has a lot of contributions to films that pe- a lot of people probably don't even know. Um, so we're here to talk about that, remember him, and pay, pay tribute. So this this question is to both of you guys, and I, I, I'll answer it as well. When did, of course, I think Blade Runner for both of you, much like for me, was on your radar far before Sid Mead was on your radar? Or is was that the case? I don't know. That might not have been the case for you, Patrick, but I didn't un- know who Sid Mead was until much later, that he was responsible for a lot of the designs, much of the designs of Blade Runner, the look of the spinner, all of those very iconic things that are in our lives right now. When did you guys first hear about him? I mean, first off, I would say that Blade Runner being one of the earlier films that i got into and being younger for me comes from an era where i hardly knew anything about filmmaking nor did i pay attention to who directed what or anything like that other than what actors are in it you know at a younger age pre 13 14 15 something like that all i was paying attention to really is who was in it and whether i liked it and you know getting used to which science fiction films were my favorite etc so I think Sid Mead falls um, in with a group of people like uh, Doug Turnbull and um, Lawrence Paul and all these other people that were in the production team that I didn't really start to learn about, um, specifically Blade Runner related, until I'd watched Dangerous Days and kind of watched Charles's interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then obviously, as you start to pay attention to someone's works then you start to realize what other things they've been involved in and you start to notice their design. And um, I think, you know, to be honest, I guess most people that are getting into the new Blade Runner comic are probably big Blade Runner fans, so they're already aware of Sid Mead. But, you know, I I can't help but think that there's a few people who are seeing these Sid Mead uh, variant covers where they're like, look at this cool, like, 80s throwback cover. And it's like, no, that's Sid Mead's original work from the movie, you know? Um, So that's really cool. I'm glad that, uh, in a sense, a new generation of people is being introduced to his work. Um, And I watched several interviews with him, and it's just, yeah, it's interesting to get a little glimpse inside um, his mind and how he worked. 
I think he could have easily been, I mean, he was a car designer. Patrick will talk a little bit more about his background, but you know, he could have been an architect. Um, and, uh, yeah, really fascinating person. Seemed like a really nice guy, but I'll, I'll pass it off to Patrick for now. That's just my introductory statement. Yeah. My, uh, so I, I was definitely aware of Blade Runner before I was aware of Sid Mead per se, but I was aware of Sid Mead earlier than you might expect because my deep dark secret that you guys know, but people who listen to the show might not know is that I'm a really intense car nut. Um, and I grew up with subscriptions to Patrick Motor nuts Trend on cars. Track. I do not own cars. <laughs> I love, I nuts love on them and inside them. He's a car <laughs> nut. Uh, this is a disgusting I, I apologize for the uh, nature, the direction the show has taken today, but you know, I can't do I can't stop them. Things have taken a dark turn. No, let me finish. So I love, you know, I, I love automotive history. I love car design. My, uh, my uncle is a, is a car designer in Detroit for Chevrolet. It's something I grew up um, around and super into. So Sid Mead would show up a lot. Not necessarily as a car designer, but as somebody whose artwork would inspire car designers, it's people like like Giugiaro, people like the, you know these these really eminent, um, especially mid nineteen eighties, art automobile designers. So that was kind of like always floating around. And then you know you would see his name when you know he would do something like Tron, or he would do a, a movie that I would see that I'd be like really into, and I think wow, this is such a visually stunning thing. There must be some sort of a common thread. Um, and then, and I guess I, I kind of put the pieces together probably in high school and, and figure out that Sid Mead was somebody I should probably become better acquainted with, at least in terms of his art. Um, and it's just, it's one of those libraries of work that is just eternally rewarding. His, what he contributed not only to film design and specifically conceptual design, which we should talk about the difference between conceptual art and production art and things like that. Um, and I'll, I'll touch on that in, in one moment, just to kind of clear up some of the, the um, terminology before we go too much further into this. But also industrial design, um, automobile design, product design, a lot of these things that him and his firm did, architectural design elevations, like you were saying, Dan, a lot of the things that he contributed to in the 20th century went uh, far outside the realm of film, but came back around again to influence film because he was so um, iconoclastic as a designer. His work was so great. Um I, one of the interesting things that happened, I mean, it must have been weeks before his passing, was when um, Tesla's Cybertruck was unveiled, which, you know, this might be a controversial subject. I am a fucking huge fan of the Tesla Cybertruck. That is, I just want to throw that out there. Um, many people are not. I get it. But I think it's just an, an incredible vehicle. And Elon Musk himself specifically said that it was influenced by Blade Runner, that it was supposed to look like it was out of Blade Runner. Um, and Sid Mead actually responded to that, like this got around to him and he was really humbled by that. Um, so Sid Mead's work has just influenced huge swaths of 20th century design, film being perhaps the most visual and the most noticeable of all of them, but he's really a, just a, a titanic figure. Um, I wanted to make a quick, just um, for the sake of clarity, so Sid Mead contributed conceptual artwork to Blade Runner. He didn't contribute production design. He was not the art director that was uh, that was uh, David Snyder. He was not um, Lawrence uh, Paul, who was the production designer. Uh, he was responsible for basically drafting up the visual look of the thing in terms of what the whole world would look like. So working with people like Ridley Scott, who of course is an incredibly gifted visual artist himself, um, and people like you know the cinematographer in the cinematography department and the production department to come up with a cohesive color palette and tonal palette and to come up with ideas about what these things could potentially look like and what if they could make it work if people like Doug Trumbull could come in and actually find a way to realize it what it could you know what it could be so although he is responsible for the spinner and he's responsible for the VK test and all these you know really iconic things 
He wasn't single-handedly responsible for what they ultimately looked like. These things were interpreted by people like Gene Winfield, the car designer. They were interpreted, the car fabricator, rather. They were interpreted by people like Lawrence Paul into actual usable pieces that would exist within the framework of the film. But the visuals that he came up with, those incredible, breathtaking visuals, were, I mean, maybe, the, the to me at least, the single biggest influence on what we actually got. Because he kind of birthed this visual world. He showed people what, if, if they could pull it off, what it could look like. And I think when you can have conceptual artwork like that, people are so inspired to try to achieve it. And I think we just see that with The Mandalorian, which I know we're all big fans of. You know, I, I, one of my favorite parts of the show is how during the credits at the end, they show conceptual artwork from when they were putting the film together. And yeah, it's just I love like that. It's so cool to see that. It's so cool to see how these ideas kind of materialize and how it deviated a little bit from what they actually got in the end, but how like the tonal consistency of that artwork is so strong. And I really feel like um, the the importance of great conceptual art can never be uh, overstated. And Sid Mead was perhaps the greatest one of the entire 20th century, or at least in science fiction. Yeah, I, I think that um, when you do a little research or watch interviews with him, um, it makes sense, even though his educational background in art was different and the way he started work, you know, actually designing cars and working in working in that um, was different from the conceptual design he did for film. I think that his mindset and his philosophy and the way he approached design really suited themselves well to conceptual design. Um, for example, uh, he was quoted as saying... Uh, when he came up with the initial sketch. So he was hired initially just to do concept design on the cars. But the way Sid worked is he really put things in context. So he would never, he usually, I mean, there are singular uh, drawings of like the VK machine by itself, which is an object that sits on a table. So that kind of makes sense. But when you're talking about a car, like Sebastian's car, for example, um, you know, he wanted to put it in the context of the city. And so he would put it on set the way he felt the set would eventually be designed. And Ridley Scott loved it so much that he ended up hiring him to do more conceptual design and be more involved in designing the sets. Um, and Sid Mead said, you know, this is not my idea of the future. This is Philip Dick's idea of the future. So I think he really went through the book and got ideas from there and that's kind of where he got some of his initial design ideas and then of course very famously for Blade Runner his style he was partly responsible for that style of taking the Warner Brothers studio lot the New York street set and then like because this was the lower level where all the crap and piping and gross stuff would be he was like oh yeah we're just going to attach stuff and you know do this add-on process where they would just add to this set to make it look futuristic um, so those were two things that i think he really brought to the picture and then when you hear him talk about conceptual art in general you know he talks about how going from drawing to film film adds so much to your design because you know you draw something eventually the production team gets a hold of it and they make this like vault door he talks about out of you know cardboard and 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 two by fours and whatever and it's like weighs however much but then with sound design and all the other things now that thing weighs 15 tons and you can feel it when it closes and stuff and so you know he talks about the sort of team process to that but i think that 
he starts off that contextual process in his art by um, elongating shadows or creating huge buildings in the background that give you sense of the relative scale of what he's drawing and kind of the world that it inhabits. Um, it reminded me a lot, um, if you go back through our files, through our um, our episodes of Jamie's interview with the 2049 uh, model designers, which is one of my favorites. I think it's episode 14. I, I often... Uh, pass it to people saying, hey, here's a good example of what we do, you know? And the reason is that was the first time, I've talked about it before, but that was the first time that I really saw um, what a concept can become when you think about things that are not literally on the screen and happening in front of you. So for example, the San Diego um, wasteland garbage dump scene um, where they're breaking down ships and, you know, the model makers described how, well, you know, they're breaking down these ships, these giant heavy pieces of metal are falling down through gravity exactly where they came from and then being dragged. Well, in real life, that would create paths because you would obviously be dragging these pieces down the same path. And over time that would dig, um, paths in the debris. And so they put that into the models, all this background stuff that isn't just showing you what a miniature of the city would look like, but it's showing you how it would change and what would happen to it if people actually lived in it. And I think I, I that that it reminded me of that because I think um, Sid Mead's art embodies some of that. You see people kind of sitting down, leaning leaning against a wall in in a, in a scene, and it makes you wonder like, who's that guy? What's he doing? You know, what's his story? Um, and this is just for concept art. So I think that's really cool, and, and it must be. Um, really helpful for all the other artists who are subsequently working on things to turn them into actual on-camera um, work, especially someone like Ridley Scott, who we know is a visual artist himself and did a lot of doodling and a lot of um, sketches and, um, and you know, worked very visually like that. So they must have worked very well together um, when they did Blade Runner. One thing I think that's important to note with Sid Mead's involvement with Blade Runner is that typically conceptual designers they come in for the beginning and then they're done and then other people step in art directors and they hone those ideas and they make them so they're they can be buildable they make them so that they can look like that they work so parts make sense sid mead was involved in production as well he was there on the set dressing doing things that conceptual designers do not do typically so his stamp on blade runner is very non-typical for conceptual designers um, the only other person that I could compare is someone like Brian Froud, who was a conceptual d designer on The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and a couple other films where he was there on set, really involved in the world building. Um, again, it's just something like even for 2049, the artist, which I can't think of his name right now, who did most of the conceptual design, you don't really, I can't remember his name. Like with Blade Runner, I remember his name. Obviously, it's Sid Mead with 2049 he's not much of a presence even though the world that they built for 2049 is there he's this kind of background character whereas with Sid Mead every project he's been on whether it was Tron whether it was Elysium you know what film he's been a part of he's almost been as important as the director I mean people want to get Sid Mead to design an element for their film I mean even obviously Denny Villeneuve got Sid Mead to design the um, Las Vegas scene or the, the landscape for when Kay gets out of his car. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. The whole area is absolutely amazing. And that is something that Sid Mead contributed. I think Victor Denis, Martinez might be one of the, yes, one of the guys. You're, you're right. Okay. Um, and Denis, 
rightly thought this should include a vision by the man responsible for the the vision of the of the future that we know, which was in the original film. So it's unmistakable, uh, it, and it, it's now it's it's forever with us. And uh, he's he's he was not your typical artist. He was not your typical conceptual designist. Where that's all he did, much like you said, Dan and Patrick. He was all over. He was all over. His film was just what he's known for. I would say as. As you were as you were saying that, I was thinking um, it's interesting. Another parallel to that in terms of somebody whose uh, involvement went far beyond the scope, and especially the duration of their role, was Roger Deakins um, in twenty forty nine, because you know he came on board obviously as a cinematographer, but he was also there way into pre production um, when they were just doing conceptual artwork for the film and when they were coming up with color palettes and tonal palettes, and he was there like living there on the set. Um, and and hanging out in meetings that he would not have normally been a part of because like the the visual thrust of the film was so strong and he was so expert at at bringing that to life that Denis and the whole creative team were like you know we should have Roger here from the very beginning and and I think you can see that you can see when somebody when somebody's vision is so cohesively realized in film or or Giger right another great example that's an alien like H R Giger was was you know hired to design the monster. And then he ended up designing, you know, almost half of the movie, basically, along with Ron Cobb and other geniuses. And the look of the movie is, like, just unmistakably influenced by Giger going way out of bounds. And not only designing these things, but building them himself. And, you know, on going set, nuts. yes. On set, yeah. like, living living in the throne room, putting this stuff together, right? It's, it's just incredible. And Sid Mead, you're totally right, was another one of these, of these figures who, because he was so gifted and because he was so passionate... Uh, would just sort of always end up contributing more than I think anybody would have necessarily expected. Even when he was, you know, in his uh, later years contributing to films like Tomorrowland and Elysium and things like that, his work stands really, really well in those movies, both of which I think are kind of forgettable, um, but visually are stunning. Um, and, and in the midst of all that, you know, he also, uh, of course, like, you know, that's where we get light cycles from. Another incredibly memorable visual motif, especially of science fiction, is the is the light cycles in Tron. That's a Sid Mead thing. And all of these all of these things that he contributed, I don't think would have happened had he not had decades, I mean actual decades of industrial design expertise under his belt by the time he got seriously involved with pre-production artwork. I really feel like, for example, the spinner is a great idea. You know, he's talked about how he conceived of it with uh I think it was going to have three different types of uh thrusters in it. There was like an anti-gravity one. Oh no, 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 no. Okay, I can't remember exactly if if he didn't want that and then it was put there and then he got rid of it. Anyway, I don't remember what the sequence was. But I do remember that Sid Mead had the whole thing mechanically mapped out. No, he did not want an anti-gravity thruster. He wanted it to be a vertical, basically like a vertical takeoff and landing craft where there'd be, you know, air pushing against the ground and allowing it to rise up into the air. So he, he you know, crafted the spinner design so that it could feasibly do that, right? If they could come up with a way to have thrust that was that manageable, it could function. So when he was giving that giving that artwork to the people responsible for actually creating the production design out of it, um, they were able to like work with things that looked realistic, that w- looked like they related to actual vehicles that they could put their hands on. Um, and so in that way, we see, and again, not to keep going back to Alien, but just like the cassette futurism in Alien, this really wonderful sense of tactile realism, even though it's the future and even though it's so far off and even though it's fantastical, it feels like something we, we already know. Sidney would always have this quote, right, where he said something to the effect of, uh, Dan, you, you, yeah, I think you were just reading about him, so you might be able to correct me on this, but something about the future is um, just the past misremembered or something like that. Do you remember this quote that I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't have that written down, but that sounds right. 
we'll we'll pull it up. But but it's it's this this idea that we already we're basically just uncovering the future. We're not trying to like come up with something crazy that can never happen. That we're kind of experiencing it like something that almost like something we've forgotten about. Um, and you see that in his artwork all the time, and it's just absolutely truly indelible. Um, I I I Jamie also something else that you mentioned that I wanted to uh to get back around to. Um, in terms of introducing a new generation to his work, uh, and this ties to what Dan was saying earlier about the the comics. So, like you know, I just went and picked up my issue five uh, a few days ago, uh, which was super exciting because I'm loving these comics. And again, and there's all of these variants. I like I love how every issue has just like so many variants, and I'm getting every single one of them. And the Sid Mead variant again just stands out so strongly. It's so vivid. It's just so. It's not comic book artwork, so like for better or for worse, but it as a piece of art that stands on its own, it is just extraordinary. Um, and I really feel like uh, when they when Titan was putting this together, when David Leach, who was on our show, was putting this together initially, um, it was a big priority for them to get to work with Sid Mead and to get permission to use some of his his um, conceptual art on the project. And he went along with it and was enthusiastic and was great to work with. And, uh, and I feel like it, it just, it really speaks to the legacy that this guy had. I mean, how many, how many other films would, for one thing, still have this kind of like, you know, ongoing creative legacy, you know, for almost four decades after they happened, but like, you know, neither here nor there. How many of those films would go back to the original concept artist and ask him to provide variant artwork for their comic book cover for a spinoff storyline? I mean, it's just like, it's just such a testament to how felt his involvement was. Oh, yeah. To how huge he looms over the landscape of science fiction and how uh, completely in- inextricable he is from the legacy of Blade Runner, in my opinion. There's a, a picture I'm looking at, a conceptual picture of Blade Runner done by Sid Mead, of course, and it shows Deckard's car and it looks like the columns of the Bradbury building. Um, it's a very, um, I, I would suppose, um, stereotypical, one of his one of his images of conceptual design for Blade Runner that we see a lot. But what's amazing about this image is even though the final film, there's some variation on this theme, it's still the film that we know, just looking at this image. This is the world Sid Mead created. What we see in the film is essentially the world Sid Mead created, down to the cars, down to the columns, down to the water on the streets, down to, like, there's this woman in the in this, like, uh, sphere, this glass sphere hanging outside, and then you see like a street sign, everything. It's all there in the film. And to see something replicated in a film that specifically, it just, number one, it doesn't happen much with con- in terms of conceptual design. Usually it's all about, let's bring it back. This is great. This is a great starting point. Like Ralph Quarry, who did Star Wars. Um, is that right? Is that his name? Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie, right? Yeah. I said Quarry. If you look at a lot of his designs you can see how, oh, okay, yeah, I can see Vader in this. I can see Chewbacca in this. I can see blah, 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 blah. I can see where he's going with the Stormtrooper. But the artists, you know, the the art directors and everyone involved in terms of the actual production of Star Wars brought all of those designs down to something a little bit more palatable, I suppose. With Sid Mead, that was not the case. They really executed essentially everything that he did to the best that they could do. It, it, it just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't. Um, in, in preparing for this episode, I, I, I ran across an article that I had no clue about, about something I had no clue had happened. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Sid Mead was brought on board by a celebrity restaurateur named Jeffrey Chodoro or Chodoro, or I don't know how you say it. 
uh, to turn uh, to basically. Totoro. <laughs> that's how it's spelled. I don't know. My we'll, we'll say we'll say it's Chitaro. we'll say it's <laughs> Chitaro. Yeah, right. I'd watch that movie. Um. Anyway, so so this this restaurateur wanted to come up with like a a hip food court. He wanted to take like the most sort of banal, crappy you know thing that we ever interact with, which is just like a a, a gathering spot in a shopping mall for people to sit down and eat fast food, um, and turn it into something beautiful. And who did he go to? Of course, he went to Sid Mead. You know, and so. This is Sid Mead now at this point in his late 70s, almost 80, uh, being approached by a hip young restaurateur developer to rethink what a, a food court could look like. He teamed up with uh, an architectural firm and he created this thing that's super, super beautiful and um, and super exciting. And here again, it's this this cross generational you know influence that he had. I mean, I I can't even imagine how cool. Can you imagine how cool it would be if you were like a developer and you were and you got Sid Mead to collaborate on something with you? It would be like having a prophet. You know, it would be like having somebody who could come back from the desert and envision an impossibility and make it real. You know, it's crazy. Did they build it? I think they did. Yeah. That's awesome. I'd love to see uh, pictures. Of that. Yeah, it's in Manhattan. Yeah, there's, there's and there's pictures online. There's a Fast Company article about it. It's 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 so interesting. Um, I, one yeah. thing to note uh, as we talk about Sid Mead, there's very some very specific designs in Elysium in terms of the, I think uh, the thing in the sky, the big sort of rich people planet in the sky is called Elysium. Um, very amazing, very beautiful, very much like his concept design. Some of the work he did for Tron is leg- is almost essentially everything he designed is in Tron. Uh, in the way that he designed it. It's beautiful. It's vibrant. Um, it takes a little bit of, there's a little bit of Blade Runner in that too. Just sort of the neon, that, that 80s when neon was big in the 80s, that sort of uh, comes across, not sort of, it definitely comes across in Tron. So as we talk about Sid Mead, I think it's important for our listeners to go out and see his films, watch the original Tron, watch Elysium. It doesn't work in terms of a story. It's not the greatest story in terms of its aesthetics, how it's put together, how it's designed, how it's even acted and directed, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, the story sucks, for sure. I'm just saying the... the uh, I'm saying that because Patrick went, meh, about that. Um, they <laughs> I can't like hear the that. Very much. <laughs> uh, I don't either. True. I don't either, but it's a visual feast. Oh, it's beautiful and, to look at. Oh, in large totally, part, that's totally. due to Sid Mead. Totally. And, but, but also he had the sense of humor. Like he did short circuit, right? This, this like wonderful kind of semi forgotten eighties, you know, movie about this little robot. Mm-hmm. He designed a little robot. And I did not know that until I was like well into adulthood. Um, cause, cause to me, that doesn't seem like a Sid Mead thing. You know, you're, you're totally right, Jamie. There's this emergent Sid Mead aesthetic that you see in the 1980s that goes from Blade Runner to Tron where you have like this everything because you start kind of getting an idea of this is what Sid Mead's art looks like right it's neon there's high contrast it's got uh, like you know really soaring verticalities and it's got these cool vehicles you you know like that's like quote-unquote the Sid Mead look but then you look at other things that he did like for example Short Circuit and he was totally versatile right like he was able to collaborate with whoever he was working on a project on and uh and and create something that was honest to the vision of that project and that is the mark of a great designer and that's something that i feel like um you see in, in great product design as well somebody who can approach uh you know a given design problem with a very specific set of limitations instead of goals so you know that this has to solve x y and z and it has to address the concerns of xxx and blah blah blah, and then you come together with something that's cohesive and new and represents like the vision of the project that he was working on. And 
he happened to be working on some like really incredibly interesting projects and it's not a coincidence because he was gifted but um i i love getting to like take a, a moment to step back now now that we've lost him and we're kind of taking time to pause and to really remember him and to look through his body of work and to see the breadth of it and to see how diverse it really was and that he really wasn't just this sort of cyber futurist that he was so many things i mean you look at the vk machine that that i think um I don't remember, Jamie, it might have been you. You were mentioning earlier that the that that, that, that I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about the same one. It's that uh, almost two-dimensional uh, mock-up of a VK from the side where it's like a, it looks almost like it's out of some sort of like a Victorian notebook or something. It's yes. so precise yes. and it's so controlled. And the way it's framed is so shocking and it's so beautiful. It reminds me almost of like the anatomical illustrations in Grey's Anatomy or something. It's this really kind of shocking, very austere, very plain and yet very detailed look at this machine that's like an impossibility right but that's what the gift of this guy was is that he took these ideas that seemed like how the hell would you ever make that work and then made them feel like you could actually just touch them like they yeah. were real and the void comp which is this completely fantastical device suddenly in that one moment looks like something not only that could be real but something from antiquity something that we've already seen before and forgotten about that that I mean that's crazy. It looks he like it so makes sense. Weak. It looks like it does. Oh, okay, this does this and this does that, and there's the eye, and that's what they're looking for. And yeah, mm -hmm. totally. The biggest uh, challenge was the Voight Kampf machine. Deckard brings it with him into the into Tyrell's office and so forth. So it had to be a suitcase, briefcase size thing, and in my mind, it had to be terrifying. And this machine was breathing because it would inhale the air, the localized air between the interviewer and the interviewee, and process that and pick up, you know, acidic traces and, and so forth, much as animals do, because animals can smell if you're afraid. So before we close, um, because Sid Mead and his art in this film have been with us for so long, and because so many of us were introduced to the film as young people, um, I think we all kind of like took things away from it that, you know, we've seen in dreams or that we felt inspired by or things that made us feel like that, you know, that really amazing wonderment that you feel when science fiction works, you know, that these things that are impossible could be possible. And I, I feel like for me personally, and then I want to hear from you guys, the, the spinner is something that like just feels uh, not like just iconic, but very personal to me. When I was a kid, I used to pretend that I could, you know, like I remember when I was taking driving lessons in my head, I was like, you know, I was obviously taking a driving lesson, but I was driving a spinner in my head. Um, I remember very vividly when I got out of 2049, um, it was the last time I saw it in theaters, actually. And uh, I went alone. It was the only the only viewing that I went to alone. It was my ninth one. And uh, and I was driving home and it was a quiet night. I'd gone to the, like the very final one of the evening. I got out at like 1230 in the morning. And I was driving home, and it was totally silent. I had the windows down. And uh, and, I, and I remember coming up over this hill over Boston and seeing the lights of the city kind of receding. And uh, and I felt in that moment like I was really driving a spinner. And it wasn't this, this sort of feeling of like just sort of pretending because it was cool and because I love Blade Runner so much. I really felt like I was kind of at one with this memory that I had that had been rekindled by this new film that I was just madly in love with, but also that had been there from the very beginning for me. Like the, I, I feel like the spinner has been this, this thing that has stuck in my mind for my whole life, you know? 
Like, and I, I get it. Like, I get why we don't have flying cars. I get why these things don't actually happen. But in the world of Blade Runner, the spinner is such a real thing, and it represents something so fantastical and so exciting. And I, I just wanted to kind of, as we close up, ask you guys if you have similar connections like that to his to his work in the film, to any of the things that he designed, or to uh, moments in your own life where you found yourself kind of daydreaming about a piece of technology and wondering what it would look like. Uh, what does Sid mean, kind of personally, to to you guys? I mean, first I'd say that I had a eerily similar experience to you, uh, although that's not my answer. But um, uh, the fourth and last time I saw 2049 in theaters, I had gone with Jamie. Jamie and I had met recently. I, I don't even, yeah, I wasn't on the podcast yet um, as a host. And uh, we went together like five minutes apart, but he was in LA and I was in Oakland. And, um, so we sat down and, you know, I saved him a seat next to me. I was like, all right, Jamie's here with me, you know, and it was a really nice memory. And I remember getting out and it was pouring rain and I was just driving my car, uh, through the city. And I just, I had really identified with Kay, uh, in that particular viewing. And I definitely felt like I was driving Kay's spinner, you know, just kind of somber and quiet and just kind of pondering the film. Um, so I had a very similar instance of that, but for me, it's maybe a little bit indirect. I would say it's not uh, a specific image that Sid Mead created that I know of, but certainly some of the feel of the original film that he was involved in. And it is the extension of the visuals. So what now we do with green screen and what Villeneuve certainly did with green screen in 2049, uh, it's all the matte paintings and all the stuff that extends from the shot of Deckard with the blanket drinking on his balcony where he looks down and the spinner passes below him. And you could just see the depth of that city. I mean, Patrick, when you're talking about what good science fiction can do in terms of making things feel real, um, all those scenes where you can just... But that particular scene, just, just briefly, what I love about that moment is you watch the lights on that vehicle you're talking about as it passes down that canyon... And you can just see this like moment where it just illuminates this like depth that you will never see the end of, but it's there, you know? It's like this this incredible reality that you can only catch through these little glimpses, but it's but it's fully realized. Um, I just wanted to I love that moment too, and I know what you're talking about, and it's it's a beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. But but these are all it's like context. It's not one particular thing, although I can point out um in the Bradbury and Fish Market shot where you see Pris walk across the street and you're looking down which is like southwest i think down that street uh down broadway and you can see the big m on that building which even charles de Lizarico, we've asked him he doesn't know what that m stands for but you know it's like details like that where it's just like it feels so alive and so real and i feel like anytime you can point to something where someone even involved in post-production in this case but even production of a film is like uh, i don't even know what that is you know because so many hundreds of people worked on it um and of course a lot of that vision started from sid mead but um that's something that i really love the fact that when you're looking at the street scene set and you know that three feet outside the frame of the camera is either the end of the scaffolding or the end of that building or like one of the hills in, in, in Burbank or whatever that's that's behind the Warner Brothers lot. And yet the illusion is so complete um, because of all these professionals doing their work. So um, that that's something that I think back on fondly in terms of visuals, which obviously Sydney was a big contributor to. Jamie? I would say for me, 
what resonates with me in terms of Sid Mead's work is, and I'll address specifically the columns, those columns that he designed that you see outside the Bradbury building, but all of his work has this really comforting feel. Like when I'm in Blade Runner, there's, I feel comfortable. I feel comforted. It's, it's, it's this, like I'm being cradled, even though it's dark and it's dystopian and it's wet and it's raining. When Pris puts all of the garbage over her under the, the, at the base of the column, she felt, I felt safe with her, even though she probably wasn't safe. There's something about his design that makes me feel safe. And one of the biggest draws of Blade Runner in terms of its aesthetics is that I feel like it takes me back to this past that I both remember, dream of, and think about on a regular basis, even though it's the future now slash past as we are in 2019. There's something very ephemeral about his work that it's everything. It's both the future, the present, and the past. And those things are very comforting. It's like you're surrounded by memories. Um, it's almost like visual music. And I, ev one of the reasons why I love watching 2019 is because those moments when Deckard is staring out at his apartment on the balcony, I feel like I'm there with him. It feels like I'm comfortable. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I can't say that about, like, I can't say that about another amazing future as someone like Ron Cobb, who is incredible. I can't say that about his work that it makes me feel loved or safe. But Sid Mead, there's something about the way he was able to design and craft his work that felt um, not just like design, it felt like a voice. You know what? I, I Something that is coming to me as you're saying that, Jamie, because I, I feel the same way about it that I'm realizing is I think Ron Cobb, who's one of my favorite artists ever, I think he kind of designs what the future was supposed to look like. And I think Sid Mead represents what it actually would be. And what we all know now that we are, we've passed the, the events of the film, right? Like we know what the future looks like. The future is not perfect and organized and the future is not um, cohesive. You know, the future is a mess, but so are people. And I think when you look at a piece of design by Sid Mead, you see that mess, you see that asymmetry, you see the strangeness, you know? Um, and that's like the strangeness of dreams. That's the strangeness of antiquity. That's the strangeness that we carry within us that great art makes us realize, whether you're Hieronymus Bosch or Salvador Dali or Sid Mead, right? It's the strangeness that speaks to the things that we don't really have words for. Jamie, like you're saying, it's like music in that way. Um, and I think it's just important to remember Sid Mead for more than just his contributions to our built environment and for more than just his contributions to our filmic realities, but for his contributions to the dreams of so many of us, for the dreams that he gave us. And he did. And, you know, sure, Doug Trumbull was a huge part of that. Sure, all of the people who put the film together were a huge part of that. But at the end of the day, the dream that we were seeing was really the dream of Sid Mead. Um, and because we inherited that dream by falling in love with this film and by being inspired by it, because people like Elon Musk did the same thing, and now he's building cars that look like cars out of Blade Runner. Like, this is something that is just continually going to be um, coming back like echoes. And I hope that we never lose sight of the fact that there was just this man, you know, that there was just this guy who was doing really hard work and going way above and beyond what was expected of him in the role that he was given 
and creating images that gave birth to um, to a million dreams that, uh, like, I really hope we never wake up from. Well said, Patrick. Um, you reminded me of something that I forgot to mention earlier, and that is that um, I often talk about an interesting aspect of science fiction is that it ends up affecting future technology because all of the children that grow up with science fiction from the 50s through the 80s through whenever um their imagination is colored with these incredible designs and and things that real artists are working on and then those kids end up becoming doctors and architects and um and designers and they inevitably it becomes a part of them and so they start to work in design and they're influenced by something that when they were children 30 and 40 years before was not possible but with the advent of technology some of those things become possible and so inevitably just like elon musk's truck um what's so cool about creatives in science fiction is that a certain percentage of your ideas um if you're great and if they become a body of work that really influences the public um, can become reality and that's really cool you're not just influencing the imagination of people but you are influencing directly the actual shape that the future will take um to a certain percentage and and i think that's really fascinating um i'll, I'll let jamie close but um i'd like to leave you guys with something that was kind of mind-blowing and you know i get google push notifications and for the last two weeks it's been you know sydney passes etc cetera, etc cetera. but um first of all i'd like to say for the podcast that our thoughts are with um sydney's family and friends and you know we we certainly offer our condolences for his loss and, and i think we can all agree that at least he lived to a, a ripe old age and had a really successful productive uh, and influential life so that's more than a lot of us can ask for so i'm happy for that um here are sid mead's final words that he was quoted um from people who were at his bedside i'm done here they're coming to take me back. Wow. That is beautiful and heartbreaking. Yeah, very profound. That That's, I mean, you know, I a lot of people don't get cool final words because you're busy dying and that's an intense process. So how cool is that, that he chose to go out saying something so profound? I really love that. Yeah, for sure. It's beautiful. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>